The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. So let's get back to the SA operations because we have a factory in Jessup, Georgia, and there are some cultural, the Deep South is very different than California, and then you have operations in Arizona, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, yeah. Mississippi and Georgia, Tennessee, Tennessee, and the Carolinas. No. No, not 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 in North or South Carolina. Okay. Yeah, you're Savannah. That's, that's Savannah on the border. Is in Georgia. Right. That's on the border. So have you had any challenges with the cultural differences of the makeup of people, how they they react to certain things, or has it been fairly smooth for you? Well, I mean, look, it's certainly it's different in the South than in California. But uh, we've had a great experience in Georgia. Uh, the, you know, when we bought Newell, we picked up about 500 really great people and that, uh, you know, we could support and grow that operation. You know, the, the our Georgia operations uh, are, you know, are some of our best operations that we have. It's certainly... Um, the most enjoyable, enjoyable acquisition that I've done. You know, it's just been it's been a lot of fun because there's been a lot of opportunity to do great things there. And so, but we've got some great people. the The regulations in the South are have been the regulations have been really great to work with, and the workforce that we've had, although it's been difficult to hire people, as it is all the way across the country. But uh, that's a, that's a, that segues into the, the the people. You know, in our factory in Jessup. We're struggling to find people. Good paying jobs. I mean, we, we have jobs paying $25, $30 an hour. And it's really difficult to find. What are you doing to attract? Where, where's the hardest place to find the people right now? In all your operations, where do you struggle the most to, to place people? Well, I mean, look, look at I'm, I'm struggling in, in Arizona. I'm struggling in um, Georgia. Um, those two states probably the most, but <clears throat> I think it's just because there's a huge labor shortage in those states. And so I always tell my guys when they tell me they can't hire anybody, if you paid a hundred dollars, they'd line up out the street. And so you've paid a hundred dollars an hour. So, but obviously we can't afford to pay a hundred dollars an hour. We'll go broke. And so there's a, there's a number in there, but you know, the, I encourage they, you to pay a hundred dollars an hour. You know, you are my competitor exactly, down the street. <laughs> exactly. So the, uh, so you know, but, but you figure uh, the days of paying $15 an hour or, or $10 an hour are gone because you've got, you've got um, um, Amazon or Walmart or different places paying 15 You can't, I mean, in California, you've got any, any McDonald's paying $15 an hour. So you just don't have a choice. You've got to pay higher wage. Well, you know, paying the wage is one thing. It's having the atmosphere in which the employees, the culture of the business that people come. But, you know, the scrap yards, that's a, that can be intensive labor. Yeah. And are you finding the actual labor harder to find? Or how about the supervisors, the safety people, the, the well, administrative I, I, people? I, I think the labors are the hardest to find. The, the higher and people, just because you're paying more money, are probably a little easier to find. But the labor is really difficult. I mean, in Phoenix... You know, we, we you know we'll usually hire through a temp first, and if we like a guy, we'll keep him. I mean, I can't tell you how many times you know temps there two hours. I'm like, I'm out of here. Okay, this is way too much work, or it's way too effing hot, or it's way too this, or 
I'm out of here. It's too dusty. You almost melted today here in Bakersfield. <laughs> How do you do in Phoenix? I know why they call it the bake here. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it. All right, so of all your yards, what's the most unique yard and why? Something different. You know, I mean, I know you got your crown jewel, Terminal Island. But what's the most unique of all the yards? No. Because you're at them all. I mean, look, every yard, every yard is different, has its uh, its little idiosyncrasies. But uh, what is the most unique? I mean, my yard in Anaheim, which is you know my first yard, you know has a big railroad on it. So we've got uh, you know I've got twenty three tracks. I, th I probably have five miles of railroad on there, um, and uh, you know we actually do work for the uh, Santa Fe, <coughs> where we handle their their cars. I mean, so that yard's a little different. Uh, plus, also, it's kind of a long, narrow yard, and so it I, works like a conveyor belt. I mean, that yard has 10 scales in it. So, literally, I used to say that I could weigh the customer, I, I'd weigh the truck, dump the truck, and, by, and the, by the time the truck weighed out, I'd already shredded the material, and then I'd weigh out the truck, and then I'd load it, and then I'd weigh the truck again, and I'd put the same stuff that the guy brought in back on his truck to send back down to the harbor. So, but, uh, so that yard is maybe a little unique, but I don't know that any one of them, I don't know that that really answers your question. No, but it's, it's interesting because it's a completely different aspect where you're handling rail cars. Yeah. Okay, we once talked about a funny story in one of your yards where you have a safety issue with an animal in the south. Oh, yeah. tell us about so, that. So, so when we bought, when uh, when we bought Alter's yard in Mobile, the uh, and we were doing the the walk of the yard, and the guy says, "Well, look, you just one thing you got to remember down here is that uh, we have an alligator. There's a big alligator because at one end of the yard there's like a little." canal or slough or bay or whatever you want to call it that comes right up the yard and he says there's a big alligator here and sometimes a damn alligator comes up in the yard we got to get the loader and chase it out and I'm thinking to myself okay you got to be kidding me I'm going to have one of my guys get attacked by an alligator this is going to be a, a really weird workers comp thing but we've seen this alligator a whole bunch of times he's still there how big is he okay he's like as big as his table I mean he's a big alligator Okay, stop feeding him. He's big enough to eat you, that's for sure. Is he eating scrap? Yeah, no, but he's eating something. <laughs> we don't have any stray cats around that yard. I'd be curious what OSHA would say. God forbid that guy bite somebody. I know. Exactly, exactly right. You can't kill him, can you? No, you can't kill him. You're not allowed to kill him down there. Is there a barrier you can... Well, so we have, have to... a fence, but they seem to find their way around them. That's pretty interesting. We got a lot of safety concerns, but I know an alligator. An animal. Yeah, I know an alligator is my first. One. We have a road runner in our yard, <laughs> but I don't have any coyotes chasing it, so I'm okay. All right. Let, let let's talk about essays. You know, you you are a domestic supplier, and you are an exporter of scrap. Okay. You supply to the mills all over the world the material they need. So let's talk about the export market in respect to what's going on in it, where's it going, what markets are shrinking, what markets might be growing in the future. So, And then we'll talk domestically because I think people need to understand 
you know, they don't understand. I remember when the World Trade Centers were bombed. All of a sudden, CNN went crazy because that scrap was going to China. Scrap had been going to China for so many years. It right. You know. right. So people don't know this. I mean, and I think it would be good to give them a little bit of where's the scrap, where's your export, and your your dot, where, where's it going? So. I mean, on the West Coast, you don't have the steel mills, and so it has to go export. I mean, you've only got one steel mill in California. So in Southern California, unless you're going to ship all the way to DJ in, in uh, uh, Utah, or you're going to ship to commercial metals in Mesa, Arizona, there's really no other market. Tampa doesn't buy that much, and uh, commercial metals is not going to stretch and pay that kind of money that you can afford to ship the scrap there. So the scrap on the West Coast is going to go export. So, I mean, it goes to Korea, it goes to Vietnam, it goes to Taiwan, Indonesia, uh, Thailand, sometimes to India, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, you know, all, I mean, we even shipped to Turkey a couple times. If there's a ship going back that's trying to get back to Turkey, then I've loaded cargoes to Turkey uh, in the last year. So, a lot of different countries from there. And once you leave California, Everything, everything I'm shipping is going domestic. So we're doing three and a half million tons a year. About a million two is going, or a, yeah, about a million two is going export. And then You're not exporting out of Mobile or out of Savannah? We're not. Uh, so that's all domestic. Just I, because the domestic business is stronger than the export there. So I mean, we have the ability to export out of Savannah, but um, it hasn't made sense. Okay, so... Today's market, you know, the market, you know, it's up, down, up, down. But right now we're, we're seeing commodity prices on a lot of different things from paper, plastic, now scrap iron is down. Is that, you know, when we hear the economy in the U.S. is growing, China came out with some news that they're actually, their, their slide's not as bad or is slowing. Europe, we know, is not good. So what's going on in the market for the export? Where's, why is the U.S. so much stronger is that the tariffs? What's going on that's creating the U.S. market so much stronger than uh, the overseas market? Well, I mean, look at it. I think the ex the U.S. market is going to collapse hard this month. So um, I think this month, you know, the U.S. market is probably going to come down forty dollars. So I don't think I don't know that the U.S. market is necessarily stronger than the export. Um, I think that overall, the whole world right now is very concerned about the trade wars. And I think their perception out there is is bad. And I think that people are voting with their um, feelings on, on the way they're doing business because <clears throat> everybody's concerned. I know we're concerned of where it's going to go. I still think it's the right thing for the country uh, for because I think we need to fight on, you know, China stealing our technology. The problem is that I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly how you win because I think that for them they would rather continue to take the technology than to uh, to make a deal. Yeah, to make a deal because it's the only way they're going to. I mean, you look at our C-17, right? Our our troop carrier, our biggest you know heavy equipment trailer. You look at theirs. I mean, the guy who stole all those plans, Chinese national, is in jail. I mean, there's no question he stole it. They have the emails of him sending all the plans to China, and you know China knocked it off. I mean, it looks exactly like ours. I mean, there's, it's not a question that that happened. So. so with the tariffs, 
aluminum movement has changed, right? Yeah, that's been really struggled because China okay, so tariffs. describe, tell us a little bit why. I mean, what what did the tariffs do to the Zorb, to the aluminum product, the byproduct? So from China trading? put China put a twenty five percent tariff on the importation of aluminum, uh, aluminum scrap, and so right off the bat, that took ten twelve cents a pound, right off the top. And so, um, and, and for, at, at the beginning, it took almost 20 cents a pound. You really just couldn't even ship it. Okay, so that was the export market. Now, what's about domestic consumption of it? Why was China the buyer of this product, or the biggest buyer, and why not so, so domestic? So really, but two things happened at once, okay? It's not just the tariffs. One is, for a lot of reasons, which I think part of it is the fact that uh, people here abused um, shipping material to China, and I think a lot of stuff went there that was really just waste. So, like, I think a lot of plastics went there that were just waste. You know, when you can ship to China for eight to ten dollars a ton, and your disposal is thirty, forty, or fifty dollars a ton here, it's cheaper to ship something as a recyclable to China. So, I think a lot of stuff went to China that were really legitimately waste. I think there was a lot of corruption going on on stuff that was shipped over. There. I think there was a lot of hazardous waste that was shipped there. And so the pendulum now swung the other way, where so before, forget the tariffs, forget any of the stuff with Trump, China was already cracking down on the environmental issues. And so and they came down hard on material going over there. Then on top of that, you put the tariffs on there and uh, take that things off, and it's just double whammy that's really hit aluminum hard. So with China... Is that because China, it's a lower grade aluminum? I'm trying to get to the point of why this aluminum was can't be consumed domestically and then had to go to China. Well, well, it's not that it, that it had to go to China. It's just that there's not enough market here to consume all the aluminum here. And maybe that's because those aluminum smelters went out of business a long time ago because China took that business and was brought it back here. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, what you have to, you have to go back so far. You know, we had, obviously we had a lot more capacity in the past, but then the world changed. A lot of this business moved to China, um, but maybe the demand wasn't there earlier when it was here. I, I don't know. But the, China was taking this material and hand sorting it, and now they want more pure material, so it has, things have to be sorted here. So there's a lot of things being done more mechanized through uh, sensor sorters and different things like that that are cleaning it up, that are sending the material to China. But, you know, really with China backing off on taking aluminum, like they have been, then that's just flooded the rest of the world with aluminum. It's just depressed prices. Prices are the lowest they've been in, I don't know, 15 years. Forecast? Do you see any change? I mean, we need economic growth in, in countries throughout the world to see, you know, maybe a demand issue creating more, more demand than there is supply. But it, I don't think we see that anytime soon, do we? It, you know, I think it, as we said earlier, okay, I'm always an optimist, right? So, um, I, I personally think the world is not that bad, and uh, I think there's just a perception out there that there that's bad doesn't seem to be a bottom. If uh, if China and the president were to make a, a, a trade deal, I think the perception would change. I think things could go back up again. Or if they don't make a trade deal, I just think that. Um, I don't think we're that bad. I mean, I think our economy is still humming along pretty good here in the U.S., and I think that that engine is going to drive the world. So. Well, we hope it does. I mean, That's right. I mean, we've been through this so many times, exactly. you know, there's the, the downturns, you know, from yeah. 90, 91 Gulf yeah. War, and then 
you know, yeah. 98, 98, 99, and then 9-11 stopped yeah, the world, and then, you know, 2008, the world did stop, I think, yeah. there for a while, because I remember the price of scrap was $75 a ton. Yeah, 100%. I remember those days. I don't really want to have to relive them. I used to sell shred for $60 a ton delivered to the dock. Okay, it was, that was 1981 or 82. It was a long time ago. Yeah, but we can't survive on those prices. Absolutely not. So, all right, so that that covers the tariff. So let's, I'm going to ask Jason Shanker. You know, Jason's an economist. I'm going to do a podcast with Jason. And one of the questions I'm going to have for him is, what's the media's role in the economy, if every day you turn on the TV and they tell you whether it's true or not, the, the economy's bad. Well, I mean, look at it. I think perception is, you know, is a lot of the issue with, with um, what's happening in the world today. I mean, people are afraid that things are bad. And I think it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, especially for us, I mean, if people stop buying because they're concerned about it and the prices fall down, then moves, less scrap moves, so we handle less volume, we have a double whammy of uh, less volume and less margin. But, you know, look at the press, you know, everybody talks about fake news. I don't know if anybody knows what's the real news anymore. And I think the press only prints stuff that's going to sell. Well, it affects our industry. See, the, the, the whole thing is, is the scrap metal... Aluminum, copper, stainless steel, new products are being made from our industry for what we're producing. So if the economy starts slowing, the demand for these recyclable products is going to go down. And that affects it. So, you know, we're a barometer. And I think people, you know, years ago used to call us junk dealers. and, And what they don't really understand is we are the backbone to the industries producing new product. Without a doubt. All right, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's go back to your family. I wanted to touch base on Adams Recycling and SA. What family members are in? Which family members are no longer working with the, the SA group? So originally, uh, you know, the, my two brothers and my sister, the four of us were running the company. My father had retired. The, my sister wanted out. She wanted to go, she wanted to write books. She was the CFO of the company. And uh, both my brothers are engineers. I'm an attorney, so that was kind of the force of running the company. My sister wanted out. I mean, she still owns her stock, but she wanted out, and uh, she wanted to go write children's books. And so, when we did the Sims merger uh, in 2007 and formed SA, then she was able to get out of the company. But my two brothers are still in, and then I have three of my boys working in the company. You have three boys, 72 yards. One seven, son in seven, college. Seven, you, seven. you don't have enough sons, George, yeah, to run your yeah. yards. Yeah, it's all true. There's a shortage here. It's all true. I, I, I mean, well, you did get the one merger with the non-Ferris <laughs> Williams family. They're creating babies as it is. Exactly. But we're gonna, it's a little... Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a few years before they're ready to run yeah, some of your my, yards. My grandson will be a while yet. So. Yeah. Well, maybe one day Cash will be running the show. Exactly. Well, look, over the years... You know, we, we, we've, we've traded, you know, people for full disclosure. Okay, Sierra and SA, we do a lot of business. We do business equipment. We do business. We trade iron yeah. every month. We've traded on Ferris. We do a lot of business together. We compete hard against each other here in Bakersfield. 
Yep. But I think full disclosures, we also understand that there's business to have between both companies. Yep. And we've kind of crossed that hurdle. And I think it's unique. We're in a very unique situation. The fact that you have a 6,000 6, horsepower shredder. Yep. Mega shredder. Mega shredder. Half a mile down the road. Yet we still trade iron. And you bought a shear for the yard down the street. Yep. So it, it, it's a really great relationship. And I think people need to understand, no matter who your competitor is, there is also cooperations that there's benefits for both companies. I think we've, we've done that a lot. And, you know, over the years, you and I, I want to go to talk about ISRI a little bit. Because you and I have something in common. We're both former chairmen of ISRI. Yep. You got me into Israel when you made that phone call. I'll never forget where I was. I was in Columbus, Ohio. You called me and told me I had to be the president yeah, of the chapter. Of the chapter. And I had never, I'm like, and I'm afraid the phone call. Johnny. Yeah, George, what's up? You got to be president of the chapter. George, I'm just a board member. I've never been a secretary, treasurer, vice president. And you convinced me. And then I talked to Dave Williams and you talked to my dad. And Next thing I know, I'm president of the Southern California chapter of Israel. Yep, 100%. So my payback for you was when I was on the nominating committee at Israel. somebody said, well, who do you got could be an officer? Well, George Adams. Yeah. <laughs> and you called me and you said, Johnny, they want me to be an officer. I go, yeah, I know. I'm the one who nominated you. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, so we've both been chairman of Israel. Israel's important still to you. I mean, we're going to the BIR in Budapest. And we go from there, and we're going to go to Israel and Portland. I still go to all the board meetings. I still go to all the conventions. Well, on July. Okay, July I'm camping, all right? But I went to this July. You did. But tell us why, you know, what, why, what makes Israel so important to you? Israel is the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries. It's the trade association for our uh, recyclers here in the United States. But tell us why it's so important to you. Look, I... The, we have a lot of operations in a lot of states. Um, we need what Israel provides. You know, it's it's what it promotes safety in our industry. What it does in legislative and and um, advocating for us, I think, is really important. I think Israel's full of great people. Um, I think the networking, you know, with all the different companies has helped me a lot. I I wouldn't have been able to acquire a lot of the companies that I bought if I hadn't known the principles at Israel for so many years. And so um, I just think it's a great organization. And I think every industry needs a strong trade organization. And the only way you have a strong trade organization is that people participate. And so, um, and obviously after being chair, Israel has got a special place in my heart for, you know, for make sure it still continues to be successful. Well, yeah. You- I do too, and I'm at all the meetings as well. And I, and I think the opportunity. I think you, you brought up a great point. And I, and I think a lot of people in our industry who listen to the Sierra to our podcast to the pile of scrap. I want them to hear that we had a lot of fun being officers, nope. and that it helped your business grow, and it's helped Sierra's business grow. I agree. And people who miss that, I don't seem to understand how they cannot know that being involved is going to help them. One day they're going to have a connection with somebody that's going to help them in their business. No question. So, tell us your best Isri story, your favorite Isri story. Oh, my favorite Isri story would be um, 
Oh, I don't know. I probably have a couple of them, but uh, when when um, they were when they had nominated me, um, you know, to to run, right? And so there wasn't. They hadn't. They didn't run anybody against me. And so Peter Kramer um, got everybody together, and they did like this little skit about all the reasons why I shouldn't be. Um, uh, well, I shouldn't be nominated, and so and he was he he, so they said is is there anything from the floor? And Peter Kramer he'd already had it all arranged. He comes up like he's mad as hell. I don't know anything about this, and then he proceeds to say, now mind you, you know he's a great guy, and and he he has he had ran a couple times, and so for him to do this for me, I think was even more special. Um, and uh, and so he basically had gotten everybody, and then he he would say everybody would stand up and say, "Well, I you know don't think George should do this because," and they would tell like some funny story like this is a G-rated podcast, George. <laughs> yeah. but, but anyway, they each told a, a, a funny story, and it was like this little mini roast, and it was it was a really really special thing, and. Uh, and they put a lot of time into it, and and then, uh, I mean, my roast, you know, after end of chair, all the work that everybody put into my roast. Uh, I don't know. There's so many. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton sitting on stage with Bill Clinton. Uh, that was fabulous. And, and then you and I behind stage. Just one of my favorite moments with Condoleezza Rice, and you're making me do my Bill Clinton imitation, my <laughs> yeah. crocodile hunter imitation. She loved it. And she was great. She's brilliantly. Yeah, you know, so as chairman, I had uh, George W. Bush, yeah. Stanley McChrystal. Those were my yeah. two keynote speakers. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the experiences we had at ISRI over the years is just, oh, yeah, you can't put a value on it. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. So. I mean, think of all the people we've met, all the famous, the world leaders from Margaret Thatcher, uh, Bill Clinton. Condoleezza Rice, Bill Bradley, George W. Bush, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, George Bush was fabulous. You know, he he was really gracious with my children behind stage. And, you know, these are the things, again, people who don't want to be involved, they don't think, oh, it's going to take too much. Nobody's busier than you. Yeah. Okay, you're the busiest person I know. And you still did it. And we did it with, you did it, and you had a smile on your face, and we had the best time. You know, history was great. I loved it. It was it was a great ride. <laughs> couldn't do it without Robin though. If you didn't have Robin waiting there, you couldn't do it. You know, Robin. Robin was. You know, she's a rock star. So when you were speaking to Robin and being an Israel chairman, so the first year you're stumbling along, to figure out what's it like to be a chair. The second year you got it. Next thing you know, you're done. That's right. So I the first first year I wouldn't call Robin every. You know, I wouldn't call her. She'd give me a call and she'd be go, John, hey, Robin, what's up? Is there something wrong? No, why? I haven't heard from you. I don't need to talk to you. <laughs> and then, it, you know, that's the first year. And by the second year, we had scheduled, we had the once a week call because it, it, it you learned. You, right. you, you had to be part of it. Yeah, I agree. She's fabulous. She does an amazing job for Israel. You know, Robin, she'll tell you. She's an introvert, so she doesn't really laugh openly. 
But I'll never forget the dinner we had. It was my last dinner, uh, executive dinner, in Washington, D.C. We're at the Capitol Grill. So it was just, nobody brought their wives. You always have Joni and Monica's with me, and Mike Lewis would bring Rita, and, and Jason Young would have Heather, and Doug would have Jill, and Jerry Sims would have Terry. But there were no wives, and it was just the guys and Robin in the room. And I'd never seen Robin ever laugh like she laughed that night. I don't really, I, no, this is G-rated, so I can't really tell what the funny things were, but I'll never forget Robin laughing and seeing her cover her mouth because she was laughing so right, hard. Right. A lot of great times, a lot of great fun. And no, you know, we've done, we're going to Budapest together. 100%. BIR, we've, we've taken the kids, and we, you know, it's really interesting. Istanbul, our, we had all the kids in Istanbul. Istanbul, but you know, our families have traveled together. We've done the last two, so we went the African uh, safari together. Yep. Then last year was Sardinia and, and, and uh, well, this, this year really. Yeah, this year. But a funny story from Africa. I got ridiculed by everybody in our jeep because when the driver said nobody moved when that elephant looked like it wasn't liking us, so you guys were just laughing at me because I was on the side. The elephant was coming, and then the next day we're out in the bush and you're laughing, still telling stories how I was scared, and then you look down and there was a male lion three feet from your head, and you jumped ten feet in that. Okay, well, he wasn't supposed to be there, okay? We were, we had no, we weren't even looking for a lion. We just stopped, okay? And the flipping lion, I could scratch its head. The elephant was a long ways away from you, okay? It just happened to be coming towards you. That it happened lion, to be my side. That lion With tusks this big. reached up and eaten me. He scared the crap out of me. I didn't pay him enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, George, listen, we'll, we're going to end this podcast. It's been, it's been great. Thank you for your insight to our industry. Thank you for the insight to SA and, and the issues, because I think a lot of people, when they listen to this, are going to be able to relate with what you go through, what we go through, and hopefully that they learned a little bit of something about our industry, and I thank you for your time. You're a true gentleman, you're a true friend, and, and I thank you. That's right. No problem, but I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for you. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of Pile of Scrap. <laughs> that's the funniest <laughs> name. <laughs> I love it. It's too funny. This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.